NHS figures released in 2018 uh, shows that um, five people uh, made 8,300 emergency calls within a year. Five people. Uh, and in fact, ambulances were sent to them 1,500 times, just to these five people. Uh, it is a huge issue, this issue of frequent calls. In fact, the NHS says that 10% uh, of all emergency calls uh, that are made to the emergency services, uh, 999 calls, are actually made by what they call frequent callers. Uh, those are people who call the NHS, or who call this 99 number, at least five times in a month, calling for help. It costs the NHS, this phenomenon of frequent calls, 20 million pounds a year, they say. And of course, many of the problems are to do with mental health issues, uh, most of them are to do with drug dependency, alcohol, and so forth. Domestic violence generates some of these frequent calls that they make, 99 calls. So, but it's not just the financial cost of 20 million pounds, there is also the human cost, isn't it? That, that's what worries the NHS and the police. Because you see, as the emergency services respond to these frequent callers, sometimes the ambulance is attending to them rather than going to someone else. Or even if it does get around to someone else, it may get there a bit late. And if somebody has a heart attack, it could be, you know, a second can make a huge difference. So it is not just the financial cost, it is really the huge human cost. And as a result, the government is uh, aging the public. Only call 99 if you have nowhere else to turn for help. If you look around and you see this is an issue that can only be dealt with through 99, that's when you should make the call for help. As I thought about that, it reminded me that the existence of the 99 emergency line reminds us that sometimes all of us face problems in our lives that are beyond us. We face problems where we need to really make that call, call on someone else to help us, other people to reach out there and help. Even if you're a billionaire, there will come a point in your life where you won't be able to help yourself. You will need the doctor. You will need to make that call to get help. Everyone has been created by God to live in that relationship of dependency. So it reminds us we need people, we need help from others. But at the same time, it reminds us that uh, uh, as we think about this issue of frequent callers, it tells us that none of us have a blank check to demand help from anyone. None of us. To get help in life, we have to qualify for that help somehow. And of course, we can think of many cases in the media that just reminded us of that. Shamima Begum's Child died, isn't it, recently? And that was an example in which it was demonstrated that she, the child didn't qualify for help. She qualified theoretically, but the government had decided that she, in practical terms, the mother didn't qualify, and the actions of the Home Secretary showed that he didn't believe the child really qualified for help. And as a result, the child died in that refugee camp. So there is all this relationship where we realize that we, to get help, we need to qualify for that help. But even when we do qualify for help, we don't always get the help, right? People may be willing, genuinely willing to help us, 
But the help that I give may be beyond them. Doctors are often like that. They are really willing to help, but actually, they just don't have the capacity to help. Not everyone who goes to the hospital gets the help. Not everyone who calls 999 gets it in time. I heard of a story of a person who called 999, and it took three hours to get there. And the person, of course, I think eventually died, and it became a big case. But even if we do get help, the help we get really never lasts, right? You are, you, you are treated for a disease today. But one day, there will come a time when you'll be sick, and there will be no answer for your sickness. You will die. Because death comes to all of us. So all of us want help, right? But in the end, all human help ultimately fails us. And the reason it fails us is because there's really no human beings can really help us for everything we long for in life and in death. And of course, we can get physical help from people, but one thing that can, people can never help us is with our spiritual problems. No human being can meet your need on spiritual matters. You have spiritual need because you're a spiritual person. And no mom, no dad, no relative, no neighbor can help you in that. The only one who is powerful and caring enough to give you the complete help, both physically and spiritually, is the Lord God Almighty himself. The one true God revealed to us in the scriptures. Only he can meet, he can meet your physical and spiritual needs. And the wonderful news of the Bible is that God isn't sort of somewhere out there removed from us. No, God has come to us in the person of Jesus. And he has come to give us complete help. Physical, spiritual. The total package. And it is to him we need to go. The Lord Jesus Christ. And we have met Christ, haven't we, in Mark. And this morning we are seeing Jesus bringing, showing us his complete help. We are in Mark chapter 7, verse 31 to verse 37. I just want to share with you briefly three things in this passage. This is a bit different for me. Three things, they all start with P, right? <laughs> I don't really like doing this, but I'll do it today. Three things starting with P about how Jesus gives us complete help. So this is easy. I don't like doing easy, but we'll do easy today. Three things starting with P. The first P is that Jesus is our present help. He's our present help. So if you were here last Sunday evening, you remember that where did we leave Jesus? Entire. Right? That's where we left him. Jesus healed that, delivered that woman's daughter who was demonized. That's where we left him. He performed that amazing miracle for her. And it was so wonderful to see our Lord. So such love, such compassion. And we were amazed by that woman's faith, the woman of time. She's a legend, isn't she? She's amazing. We, we look to her faith and we're like, Lord Jesus, I want to be like her, right? We saw her faith. That's why we left Jesus doing that amazing thing for her. But Jesus is now finished his breaking tire, right? And instead of going back to, the, to his ministry headquarters in Capernaum, he heads off to the Decapolis via Sidon. Let's read verse 31. 
Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, if you have your Bibles, I don't know, if you, got, if you bring your own Bibles, I encourage you to bring your own Bibles. And if you've got your own Bibles, maybe you'll flick at the back and you, you can trace through where Jesus has left. Maybe you even trace from where he started off. I don't know if our Bibles have him up. But you can trace from where he's in Tyre all the way to Sidon and all the way down the Lake of Galilee and is in the Decapolis. The route Jesus has taken is like traveling from London, right? to southern France by first going to Scotland, right? Then Belgium, Netherlands, Netherlands, Belgium, and then all the way down to south of France. It's like that. It's done like that, right? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a long trip because he's starting off in Tyre, then he goes 20 miles north to Sidon, then he turns southeast 40 miles back to the Sea of Galilee, and then he's in the Decapolis. Some Bible scholars uh, tell us that this trip has probably taken Jesus around eight months on foot. It's that long. That is a lot of time I think Jesus has deliberately taken out to spend with his disciples, to, to nature them, encourage them, uh, away from the crowds. You remember the crowd has been always coming after Jesus and the disciples, and now he's got time with them, and he's taken perhaps his eight months just to be with them. But that's not the surprise. The surprise is not how long this weird trip so to speak. The surprise is where Jesus is now. Do you know where he is? He's in the Decapolis. Did you see that? He's in the region of the Decapolis. When did we last meet Jesus in the region of Decapolis? In Mark chapter 5, when he drove out legion from that man who was demonized. That's Mark chapter 5, verse 1 to 20. You can look it up. And you remember that Jesus was chased away from there. After he did the miracle, the people didn't want him. They repaid his kindness by chasing him away. But Jesus never holds a grudge. Many of us do. But Jesus never does that. So he has come to be among them. And as soon as our Lord Jesus arrives, a crowd of people who are aware of his healing power come to beg for help. It's amazing. Last time they were begging Jesus to live. Now they are back begging Jesus to help their friend. Let's read verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. The people of the Decapolis have realized that they need the help of Jesus more than they know, right? And the question they are now facing in front of them is, will the man they rejected now reject them in turn? Will Jesus do what most of us would do, simply being, I came last time, I did something amazing, I taught you, I did all the rest of wonderful things that you expect, and frankly, you treated me very shabbily. You heal him. What do I have to do with this? I'm on a different mission. That's why, humanly speaking, we expect Jesus to react and I would understand if that's his reaction. Remember, that man used to terrorize them in Mark 5. They couldn't restrain him, and Jesus set him free. And yet the people didn't appreciate all the work he was doing. So Jesus could just say, no thanks. Go and heal him. But Jesus is not like us. He's not looking for a pat on the back. Well done. 
Uh, that's not why he's come in this world. He's not going around sort of, you know, wanting to be appreciated. Many of us want everyone to tell us just how wonderful and excellent we are. And when we're not being patted on the back, we get upset. Jesus is not like that. He has come to give himself selflessly to the helpless. And as soon as Jesus hears their cry, he answers the cry. Let's read verse 33. Mark tells us that Jesus takes the man aside. And taking him aside from the crowd privately. Can I just pause there? Because what I want us to see here is that there's no word of rejection from Jesus. He just takes this man privately. There's a lot we can say on that. But the main thing I want us to see here is that what we are looking at are people who have discovered that our Lord Jesus is always present to help us. No matter how much we've offended him, his grace still abounds for us. And if you're a true follower of Jesus this morning, you know this truth in your own life. You know that Jesus never holds grudges against you. There was a time in your life you thought you were wise in your own eyes. You never saw the need of trusting Jesus. You chased Jesus away. Maybe you never raised a fist against him or said, go away like these people in Decapolis once did. But there was a time in your life you put career, money, relationships, hobbies, and other things ahead of Jesus. You never saw the need to truly surrender to Jesus because you felt, I am getting along fine in my life. Why do I need this Jesus? Why do I need to surrender to him, really? But one day, you came to your senses. Every Christian has this story. You came to your senses. Like, like, like in the parable of the lost son, you realized, you saw the spiritual darkness you are in. You saw that you had needs that only Jesus can satisfy. You recognize your sinfulness. And so like this crowd, you left the castle of self-reliance. You came to Jesus. Yes, I chased you away, but you came to him and you, and Jesus, instead of casting you off, embraced you in his everlasting arms of his grace. That's vintage Jesus. All Christians have this story in some way with different details. And, but it's not just a one-off story. It, all Christians have it as an ongoing story. Because you see, as you keep growing in Jesus, you are finding yourself that you still mess up. And you are discovering that in all your messiness, Jesus never abandons you. He's always present to guide, to provide. He always said, Jesus seems to send the right people in your life. That's been my story. Just at the right time. A word of encouragement just when you need it. And sometimes you offend other people and you find that Jesus is even present in the people you offend. Because at the right time, you get a different response from those you offend. And you can see the face of Jesus in them. This is just one way in which Jesus is holding, guiding you, keeping you in his love. All believers have this story. Different detail, but basically the same. Sometimes we forget, of course, just how lovely Jesus is. We forget that he's always present to help us. And in those moments of our forgetfulness, 
we, 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 we become prayerless, don't we? We don't pray to him because we forget just how lovely, how beautiful he is. Beloved, perhaps you are in that season at the moment where you have forgotten just how super duper amazing our Lord is. You feel distant, perhaps, because of the situation you're in. I just want to encourage you this morning to take another look at your Savior here. Look at his grace. Look at his compassion. Look how he treats this man with dignity. Look how he takes him aside. Not to make a sure of him, but to minister to him. And perhaps for some of you this morning, Jesus, he's saying the same to you. In those moments in which you feel so overwhelmed, he's just saying, come away with me on the side so that I can minister to you. That's our Lord. That's why I love him. And if you've been following him, that's why you love him too, because you know his grace abounds for us in our weakest moments. So go to him afresh. Let his glory and beauty drive you to your knees in wonder and adoration. And in those moments, be assured that whatever your circumstances, he is your present help, as we read in Psalm 46. Because that's the first truth we learn here, isn't it? Jesus is our present help. The second truth we learn here is that he's not just a present, he's also perfect. Jesus is our perfect help. Let us rejoin Jesus there. He has taken the man aside, doesn't he? Let's read verse 33 to verse 34. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, his tongue, sorry, and looking up to heaven, he sighed. Let's just pause there. Because as we look at this, we're going, what is going on here, right? Is this some ritualistic mumbo-jumbo or something? No, of course not. What Jesus is doing here is that he's entering this man's world. Now remember what this man is. This man cannot hear. And he can't, although I think he can stammer a little bit, he can't actually speak clearly. That's implied uh, in verse um, 32. He has a speech impediment. And so if we, what Jesus is doing effectively is what we might say, maybe he's using sort of sign language, we might say, right? Because imagine you're watching this from a drone, right? Imagine this event is there, Jesus is just with this man. And there's a drone there circling above, and we are watching the feed, right? The video feed from what's going on here in verse, um, in verse 33 from a drone, right? What are we seeing, Okay. Well, first of all, we are seeing Jesus place his fingers in the man's ears, right? That's what he's doing, all right? It's in man's ear, not in Jesus, right? I mean, it could work that Jesus is doing this for himself, but I think he's placing them uh, in the man's ears, and so he places them in the man's ear, and then he removes them, right? What is Jesus saying to the man? Well, Jesus is saying, I'm going to remove the blockage in your ears. We then see Jesus spit. There are some versions of the Bible say he spits on something on the tongue. No, I think the, the, the Greeks simply say he spits, right? He, he just spits. I think actually Jesus probably spits out, right? That's what I think. You, I'll leave you to check different versions of that. He spits out. And I think what he, he spits out, right? Where? He, he spits and then he tightens the man's tongue. So he's like, right? I think what Jesus is saying to the man is, I'm going to remove the blockage in your mouth and you'll be able to 
speak. Right? And then we see Jesus glancing upward to heaven. What does that mean? Jesus is saying to the man, it is God alone, right? It is God alone who is going to be able to do this for you. It's not some ritual. It is God alone. Amazing sign language. And as soon as Jesus finishes speaking like this, communicating to this man who can't hear or talk clearly, he now commands the man's ears to open and the time to be set free. Let's read on this, 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Hepatha, that is, be opened. Verse 35. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. In the original language, verse 35 reads, his ears were opened and the chains of his tongue was released. Now we can have an interesting go at this. But remember the last time Jesus was in the Decapolis, he set a man free from the chains that had imprisoned him, the, chain, the demonic chains. Well, Jesus is back again, doing the same thing, setting this Decapolian, so to speak, again free, this time from that prison where he couldn't speak clearly and couldn't hear. The eardrums now in the man's ears are as good as new, right? His stammering tongue is now ready to sing the praises of God. And his friends are overjoyed. They are so excited, in fact, at what Jesus has done, that our Lord charges them to keep quiet in case this gets in the way of preaching the gospel. Let's read on verse 36. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. I understand this. We have all had something wonderful, haven't you? You've had something wonderful in your life, and you've been told not to talk about it. But you just couldn't help it. The news was so wonderful, you didn't see any harm in sharing it. And I think that's what's happened. We've all experienced this. The news is wonderful. There's nothing evil that's been done. It's so great. So why am I being told to keep quiet? I think I'm just going to tell the next person. So they, they are so excited that they are failing to, to obey Jesus. They're not just whispering. They are preaching what Jesus has done. Don't miss that kerygma. The more zealously they proclaimed it. It's the same word for preaching. We could literally say, the more zealously they preached it. Now, to be sure, they are sinning against God, because Jesus is God, and he's given them a command not to speak about this, for his own reasons. And yet they are speaking about it. But God is bigger than our sin, isn't it? That's what we learned from Samson. God is bigger than our sin, and sometimes he even works through sin. And this is an example. They are sinning against God by rejecting what Jesus has commanded them. But God has worked through that, their sin, to declare something wonderful about Jesus. Right? Look at verse 37. They are sinning, but they are saying the right thing. And it worries me, actually, by the way, when it comes to preaching. This is just for myself. This is, this is better for myself to remember. Which is, sometimes when we share the word of God, we can be sinning as we do it, even though we are saying the right things. Think about that. Veronique, we are, we are handling the word. Let's think about that. We can be sinning, this is maybe for Veronique, we can be sinning, and we can be sinning, even though we are preaching the right thing. They are preaching the right thing, but they have disobeyed God at the same time. Let's see what they're saying. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf ear 
and the mute speak. The people are saying that Jesus has not simply helped our man. He has done it perfectly as God himself would do it. Jesus has done all things well. Where have you heard those words before? Those words are echo of Genesis 1 verse 31. When God finished his work of creating the world. We read this in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31. And God saw everything he had made. And behold it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The miracle, in other words, is telling us why is Jesus perfect? Well, Jesus is perfect because Jesus is God. He does all things well. He's not only our present help, he's our perfect help. And if you go to him, he will give you just what you need. Not necessarily what you want, but the perfect thing that you need. And maybe you're in that season of life where you feel like Jesus uh, is not up to much. In fact, when you look at what Jesus is doing in your life, you feel like he's doing mambo-jambo, right? Just some ritualistic thing. You can't understand. You don't get him. Lord, I'm praying for this. What's going on here? Things are getting worse. I just don't understand what you're up to in my life. And perhaps you're beginning to doubt. Beloved, is that you? Is that you? Well, let this miracle encourage you. We don't always understand what Jesus is up to. When we look on that drone, it looks like mambo-jambo, right? We don't see what's going on here. What is sign language? We, we, we prefer clear words from Jesus. But Jesus knows us better. He knows what we need. And he's doing it by us just right. We can be sure that Jesus does all things well. And he's doing it for his glory and for our good. And he's doing it perfectly. So let us trust him. You know, I love what Chuck Corson wrote in his letter to Jonathan Etkin uh, as a former defense minister in the major government, tried to make sense of the world that was collapsing around him during that uh, libel trial. That was Jonathan Etkin's situation. So Chuck Corson wrote from it to him from the U.S. Corson said this, As you know, Jonathan, I have looked back on the Watergate scandal that sent me to prison and thank God for it. Through that crucible, I came to know Christ personally and discovered that in the darkest moments of my life, Jesus was working to produce what I would later see as the greatest blessing of my life. If you're trusting in Jesus, he wants you to trust in his perfect help. In the middle of your darkest and painful difficulties now, and if you do that, just like the crowd, and just like Charles uh, Chuck Corson, you will in the end rejoice and testify that I came to discover that in the darkest moment of my life, Jesus was working to produce what I would let to see as the greatest blessing of my life. If you trust Jesus in your darkest moment now, you will let it testify like this crowd, Jesus does all things well. That will be your testimony if you come to him and trust in him in your current situation. And you discover more than that. 
You testify to another truth we see here because it's not just that Jesus is our perfect help. We see in this passage a final truth I just want to quickly share. Jesus is our permanent help. He's not just our present help. He's not just our perfect help. He's our permanent help. Let's look again at verse 34 there. Just briefly. Look at verse 34. As Jesus heals a man. Did you notice something? Verse 34 says, And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Hepatha, that is, be opened. Jesus has done this miracle, full of emotions. He utters a deep sigh, and he speaks in Aramaic. That's the language. Hepatha. Why is Jesus, what did Jesus do it this way? Well, the clue is the word sigh, you see, because it is better translated as moaned. Mourning is an expression of pain and sorrow. Why is Jesus sorrowful when he's just about to do something great? I mean, why? He's about to do the miracle, he knows that. So why this deep pain within him as he's about to heal this man? Well, the reason is that Jesus is identifying not only with the man's physical condition before he heals him, he's identifying with his spiritual condition. And especially that spiritual condition we know because Mark here hints at this by the use of the word in verse 32. It's not going to be clear. This is going to sound very weird now. But in verse 32, in the original language, Mark uses as one word that is only found here in Mark and only in Isaiah 35. The word is one, but it appears in our vision as a sentence. And it describes the man. Deaf and had a speech impediment. In the original language, deaf and had a speech impediment is one word. Moglialos. Moglialos. As I said, it's used only here, and it's only used in Isaiah 35, verse 5. A very rare word. And the only reason Mark is using it is because he wants you to cross-refer to Isaiah 35, verse 5. He says, you can't understand what's happening here unless you read that. So let's read that. Isaiah 35, we'll read from verse 4 to verse 6. The prophet Isaiah says this, he says, Say to those who, are, who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold your God come, will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Mogliolos. And then, unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Mark is saying to us, look, do you see the deaf hearing in the Decapolis? Do you hear the mute tongue shouting for joy? That is because your God has now come to save, as he promised in Isaiah. This man, Jesus, in the Decapolis, is the creator God coming to reign. He proclaims the kingdom in chapter 1, and now he shows us how this kingdom is working out in the Son of Man. He's saying the kingdom of God has now appeared in person in Jesus. But did you notice something? There's also something else Mark wants us to see. I hope you read Isaiah very carefully. 
And you, when you read it, you should be like, are we sure about that? Because Isaiah says this. Did you notice? Isaiah is saying, God is coming to serve us in Jesus. But how? With vengeance and with recompense. I hope you pick that up. Be, be, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with what? With vengeance. With recompense. He will come to save you. And as we see the decapolis, we have to ask ourselves, where is the vengeance here? Jesus is not pouring vengeance in the decapolis. He's not punishing them for what they did. In fact, I spent the first part saying, Jesus is showing them grace. He's coming to help. So where is the vengeance? Where is the recompense of God? I hope you know the answer. You know the answer, right? Because the answer is wonderful. The answer is that Jesus has not come to bring divine vengeance. He has come to take divine vengeance on himself. He has come carrying it on his back. He has come to be crushed by God's vengeance. He is coming with vengeance, but it is vengeance on him. And where is Jesus crushed? On the top of the hill called Calvary. Where Jesus endures not only the Roman nails, but the full punishment, the full recompense, the full wrath of God himself. God does not overlook your sins. Otherwise you'll be a sinner like us. And at the same time, God loves you. He cannot bear you to suffer pain. To suffer his full vengeance. So how is this tension resolved? Well, God has come with vengeance and recompense. To take on himself that vengeance. To take the bullet for you. He has taken on himself the punishment by dying for your sin. You see, it is great for Jesus to help you from your physical, emotional, relational problems that you have in your life. But your greatest need is to have this spiritual need met. You are headed for a crush with God himself. That's the big help you need. The wrath of God is resting on you. You want God to deal with that. That's the biggest problem I have. That's the biggest problem you have. Whatever problem you're facing is nothing compared to that huge, infinite wrath that rests on every human being. And that's what we need help from. We need permanent help from that. To be rescued from sin, to be rescued from death, to be rescued from Satan, but ultimately to be rescued from God himself. You have been saved. The question you must ask if you're a Christian, what are you saved from? From God. You are saved by God from God. Because God's wrath rests on all sinners. And Jesus has come to bear that punishment. And this is the help we need. Because in Jesus bearing that punishment, we are able to have life with God. And as we have life with God forever, well, we have all the help we need. If God is in me and you are in him, well, if God is in me and I'm in him, then I have everything I need in him. God is who we need. In every dimension of life. And the end of the news of this passage is that Jesus has come to bear that punishment, to restore God to us by his death on the cross, to restore us to God 
by that death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. He, Christ in himself, promises to be in us if we turn to him. Christ in us, the hope of glory. But to have this, you must truly surrender to God. This means accepting truly you are a sinner and asking him to forgive you of your sin based on his death for you. It must be a real surrender, not a tick box thing. It must be genuine turning to him. And when you do that, the floodgates of God's help will flow for you. You will know Jesus as your present, perfect, and permanent helper. And you'll be able to join with other true followers of Jesus in singing from the heart those words of Charles Wesley, isn't it? Which we'll sing. Charles Wesley says, Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of cancelled sin, he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Who's a Christian? A Christian is the one who can say with Charles Wesley, his blood avails for me. And if you're in Christ, you have him as your present, perfect, and permanent. You can, I know, whatever is going on in your life, you can say, it is life and health and peace. Amen.